Hello and welcome to the first of a new bonus series here at Cinemaholics. This is a series that we are calling Extra Milestone. What is Extra Milestone? Why are we doing this? Well, before we get into all that, I'm going to introduce our co-hosts. First of all, we have Cinemaholics co-host. You know him well as Will Ashen from the Internet Pennsylvania. How are you doing, Will? I'm all right. How are you doing, John? Couldn't be better because I watched a movie that I really liked, but we're going to talk about that in a second. Also from the internet, Colorado, he is a frequent Cinemaholics contributor and always fun to bring him onto the show, especially to talk about older films, which is what we're going to be doing. Welcome, Sam Noland. Thank you very much, John. It's good to be back so soon. It's been That's like a right. week or something. Yeah. yeah, It's been like literally a day or two, but a couple of days. Right. That's how much we love having you on. Oh, well, thank you, John. I appreciate that. Well, okay. So a few months ago, we talked about maybe doing a new series that focused on anniversaries. You know, every year there's lots of anniversaries that happen for older films. And on Cinemaholics, we obviously talk about new releases every weekend, but we just kind of wanted to maybe try out a new thing for season three of the show where we just take a, a week out of the month or just one episode out of the month to talk about a film and kind of celebrate it. And for the first time we're doing this, February 2019, that film is It Happened One Night, which came out on February 22nd, 1934. That's right. This movie came out 85 years ago. And I couldn't oh, think of belly. a better film to start off with, right, than a big milestone like that. Yeah, it is. It is a big, uh, important movie in film history as well. So, in addition to just being uh, pretty damn good, if I do say so, uh, it's also a good way to sort of to sort of get into this. And I'm wondering how many of the listeners have seen it too. So, it'll be interesting to hear some of the feedback on this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're the only one, I think, of the three of us who had seen this before, right, Sam? Hell yeah. Which, Which is, is uh, insane. Ironic. It's wild. Yeah. <laughs> Given that you're the youngest <laughs> of the three, but yeah. Well, there's no need to point that out so often, Will, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, so. It's a compliment. I, I I take it as such. But, you know, Sam's right. I mean, this is a foundational film. It, it's hard to be in the film world and not know what this movie is. Obviously, Will and myself have seen many Frank Capra movies, uh, I would assume. And, you know, some mm -hmm. of my favorite movies ever, you know, include It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, probably his two most well-known alongside It Happened One Night. Now, I learned about this film in film school. We didn't, it's not one of the films we were like tasked with watching though. And I, I deeply regret that because I feel like watching this movie in like my early 20s probably would have been just a just starting my 20s off on a good note this is a very feel good movie but <laughs> yeah will has it just always been on your radar but you just never had a chance with it i suppose so yeah yeah and i, I think sam you, you how did you discover this one you know i actually don't remember it was about a year ago now so it actually wasn't that long ago um i'm only ahead of you guys by a little bit I, I seem to recall uh, last year, early last year, wanting to watch a whole bunch of movies from the 30s because that was a, a decade I felt sort of lacking in. Uh, and this is obviously one of the big ones. So I watched it and uh, have, have never regretted it since in the year. And I was overjoyed to be able to revisit it. Yeah, I saw that you gave it the rare five stars on Letterboxd, and you're far from the only one of my Letterboxd friends who has given it the five star honor, which is obviously not something we give out all that often now so for oh, this episode we're going to be doing basically there's going to be two halves to this and if you've never watched it happen one night we do recommend that you watch it before listening to this episode but we are going to start off with a lot of background information we're going to talk about where this film comes from why it became so popular uh we're, we're going to mostly avoid very specific spoilers and things like that. But as this episode is going to progress, we're obviously going to start talking more about the plot itself. We're going to be talking about certain themes and situations that happen toward the ending that you might not want to be spoiled on. So totally, totally fine. If you listen to the first part of this episode, when we're talking about where things fit, I do think that it helps before I ever watch a classic film. The Sometimes, and not all the time, I feel like the more I know about it going in, the better off I am. This isn't the case with It Happened One Night. I kind of watched this blind based on what I already knew about it. And I really only knew that Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert was in it. And I mean, Frank Capra directed it. And I, I really didn't know that much about it beyond all of that. I feel like I've forgotten a lot, but that's kind of what we're going to be doing for this. And so to start things off, 
Let's talk about Frank Capra. You know, he directed mm. and co-produced this. Sam, what's your opinion on Capra's legacy? I mean, you know, he made a lot of films in the 1930s. I think one of the the most interesting things about him, you know, in this current time in February is that he had a lot to do with the Academy kind of going through a lot of systemic changes in the thirties uh, because this is when the unionizing kind of threatened the existence of the Academy. And this film in particular played quite a sizable role in the Academy still existing today. Uh, but what do you think of all that? Uh, I think yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't know a whole lot about that, uh, that Academy stuff, but um, I do think that he's obviously a very important uh, director uh, has directed some of those important movies of all time. A few, many of which I've seen. Uh, what the one that you didn't mention that I'm particularly fond of is Arsenic and Old Lace, which is another screwball comedy. I know we talked uh, about this before because I I don't think I like that one quite as much as you, but obviously still a great film. It, it's not one of my favorite movies of all time by any means, but I think it's very funny and I think it really embodies the spirit that Frank Capra had. Uh, mm. Just that sort of joyous. Uh, occasionally patriotic or, or maybe sort of subtly uh, underlyingly patriotic. Well, it, Mr. Smith goes to Washington specifically, but there's always a sense of sort of uh, Americana in both the good and the bad. And I think this, this particular movie that we're talking about is a great example. Uh, I, he, I know he worked in the silent era. I'm not too familiar with that part of his career, but uh, I have seen one movie of his uh, called dirigible from late twenties, early thirties. Uh, that's, that's definitely got the patriotism. So he definitely had a certain set of ideas that he liked to work within. Uh, and I think he was able to master it on numerous occasions. So that's, that's my, uh, that's sort of in a nutshell, my relationship with, uh, Capra. Yeah. He's, it's kind of hard to find some of his silent films. You know, I think the only one I've seen is for the love of Mike, and mm. that's about it. I mean, once you get into the 30s, you know, specifically It Happened One Night is a little bit easier and a bit more accessible because that film was digitally restored uh, years ago. And there has been more of an effort to, you know, keep that one intact. I mean, we don't talk about it on this show as much, but, you know, it, it should be mentioned that back in this era, people didn't know that films, especially It Happened One Night, were going to go on to be so beloved. You know, there were going to be films that, they should, you know, take effort to preserve and maintain. And we're lucky that we have as many films as we <laughs> do, but there are so many films that have just been lost to time that, you know, it, I was going to ask you all as well, but starting with you, Will, I mean, how did you access this one? I know that we always recommend you, you go to your library because that's usually the easiest way to find older films. But what about you, Will? How were you able to check out it? All, uh, it happened one night. Um, I was able to use iTunes to watch it. Okay, yeah, because that's what I use as well. And Sam, did you use anything else? I used I used uh, Amazon. That's my streaming service of choice. Uh, last year, I did not. I did use the library last year, so I do. That is a great uh, underused service. In the oh yeah, for world. sure. That would have yeah, been my backup. Yeah. Yeah, you can rent it and you can buy it on iTunes. I went ahead and bought it because I just had a feeling that I was going to love it. <laughs> and spoiler alert, I do. I do think it, it amazes me how this film, and we'll talk more about it soon, how accessible it is for modern viewing. I, you know, I was expecting to love it because I love a lot of older films, but while watching it, I had the feeling I was like, man, I could show this to so many people I know who would normally not watch a film that was made before the 80s. And uh, I was pretty happy to discover that, that, that this film has that kind of approachability, I guess you could call it. But yeah, so we mentioned Fink Capra uh, directed this film and Harry Cohn, who's the co-founder and president of Columbia at the time. Uh, he was also one of the producers and he collaborated with Capra to get this thing made. But if you do any digging into this film, I mean, it was shot in about four weeks. Uh, it's the kind of film that nobody thought was going to be a success. <laughs> Claudette Colbert famously hated every day on set, called it the worst picture in uh, in the world. You know, none of them expected this film to have any success, and it didn't when it first came out. And uh, another interesting thing, you know, I, I didn't realize that this was based on a short story by mm. Samuel Hopkins Adams, who not not a household name these days, but he was a pretty famous. Uh, journalist and fiction writer uh, back in the 20s and 30s. And he wrote this short story called Night Bus. And I kind of love that they changed the name <laughs> because Night Bus, I think, who would want to watch that movie? And instead, it happened one night, I, I think was kind of a genius way to sort of get people intrigued of like, oh, well, what happened? <laughs> you know? And, and so that's how we got off to the races. But 
Yeah, I mean, Sam, was there anything when you were you were looking into this film that kind of surprised you or jumped out at you about how it was made and where it comes from? Uh, well, the thing about Night Bus, uh, a couple of things, actually. I think it is a good thing that they changed the title because now, obviously, it would probably be uh, confused for the, the, the triple-decker purple bus from Harry Potter, which I think has the same name. So mm-hmm. that would have been unfortunate. Um, also, when you said we were doing this episode, I tried to find because it's a short story, I'm like, yeah, what if I can find it, I might as well read it to get a little context. I right. could not find it anywhere. It's lit- I went to three different libraries and on every uh, just like book website I could possibly find, I could, I could not find it anywhere. So if anyone has any idea where I might find this. I really yeah, definitely write in because yeah, this strikes me as something that probably exists only in print, uh, you know, in a journal or a periodical that's preserved right now in very limited spaces. So yeah, that yeah. is a bit unfortunate that it's not as readily accessible, but yeah. Uh, one thing I do want to mention too, is that this was one of the last romantic comedies mm. to come out before the MPAA, the, the motion picture association that, uh, enforces basically what you're allowed to get away with in a film. Uh, they, I think they initially came out with what was called the Motion Picture Production Code in 1930, but they yeah. didn't really enforce it much. But the 30s were really when films, more, more and more films started to get made. It became such a mass-produced quantity. More and more theaters are starting to open up, not just in the cities, but also in rural areas, which was very instrumental to this film's success in particular. Now, this film came out, however, a few months before the MPAA started to really strictly enforce this code. It's a very famous period in time, 1934, a very pivotal year in cinematic history, for that reason. And because of that, you have this movie where a few things happened and I was kind of shocked. I was like, they <laughs> let people, this actually happened in theaters in 1934. It was so lax, right? And we don't usually think about that, you know, in this this time and age, but that was certainly the case. It, it, is, it is very interesting uh, how it came out literally a couple months before uh, uh, the code. It was also called the Hayes Code, I happen to know. Um, and uh, it is interesting that you mentioned earlier about that whole thing where it's sort of a miracle that as many films have, have been preserved as there have been, uh, because in like, you know, throughout most of the 20s and part of the 30s, uh, movies were sort of seen as just this expendable thing that just sort of come and go. There was yeah. very little thought given to legacy. And I know that uh, on many occasions that they would uh burn the prints of movies and just mm-hmm. destroy them completely because they say all right we showed them we don't need them anymore and so that's the reason why a lot of things are lost so uh now that they're becoming sort of a a wa- more widespread part of culture in the 30s it does make sense that they would start to enforce this code which lasted until 1968 if memory serves uh so that that is that is certainly an interesting uh thing for me to think about yeah, yeah. The the code, I think, was initially conceived of because there was just this immense pressure from, I think, the Catholic Church to more strictly regulate oh, yeah. theater viewing. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of it how was, it was in the 30s. I, I believe the the organization that sort of pushed for it was, was the Catholic Legion of Decency, right, which is yeah. wonderful. <laughs> now, we're going to talk about the film itself in just a moment, but just a couple other things to set the stage. This film cost about $325,000 to make which was several million dollars, obviously, by today, if you adjust for inflation. And it made about $2.5 million theatrically. But we, we mentioned earlier this film. It did not in any way, you know, hit the box office, you know, hot when it first came out. People famously saw this in the cities and just didn't really click with it when it first came out. It wasn't until this started to spread to other theaters in more rural areas that people, word of mouth, really carried this film to huge success. It's now one of the biggest, if not the biggest film of all time from Colombia, uh, simply because of what they made off of its profit and syndication since. I, you know, Obviously, this is a film that has been passed down for years and years and years. This is also the uh, the first film ever to win all five major Academy Awards. It won 
Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay, the big five. And before this time, you know, the Academy wasn't usually known for films winning so many different awards. You know, they usually were a bit more democratic, I guess, where <laughs> a lot of different films would win a lot of different things. But we should say only other, only two other films have ever managed to sweep the big five. They would include One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, real mm. quick, though, the one of the most interesting legacy pieces, I know, Will, you wanted to comment on this. Uh, I know you're a big fan, but uh, yeah, there there is a bit, this movie is quite famous for inspiring a certain cartoon character that we all know and love. Yeah, no, I think while I was watching the movie, and I was trying to remember exactly how I knew Clark Gable, I was thinking about uh, Bugs Bunny, and I was like, you know, this has kind of a similarity to Bugs Bunny. But then, like, when the carrots came out, I was like, oh, I, I bet for sure this was the influence for yeah. um, Bugs Bunny. And then, yeah, I was looking it up, and, like, for sure, I mean, just the way he responds to things, his kind of, like, dry, sarcastic wit. Um, not even not even so much the physicality of Bugs Bunny, but certainly just his response and the way he kind of uh, lazy fares through life. It's definitely very reminiscent of definitely that. Definitely the fast-talking, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean... You can totally see it uh, upon watching this film. And I mean, I, I when I really thought about it, I knew at some point that like Clark Gable was an inspiration, but I didn't really put two and two together until I was watching this film. Yeah, I, I kind of had the same kind of moment, especially because, you know, you, you see when you meet King Wesley in this film for the first time, there's Pepe Le Pew, right? Uh, <laughs> a lot of characters you can kind of point to as inspirations for a lot of Looney Tune characters. Uh, there are some remakes that have been made for this film. There's a musical called You Can't Run Away With It that came out in 1956. I haven't uh, seen it, but this one stars Jack Lemmon, uh, who's one of my favorite actors, as well as June Allison. Have you seen this one, Sam? I have not. Uh, I'm certainly interested because I, I like both of those actors a lot. Yeah, and I, I wonder, too, while watching this, I was like, oh, wow, this feels like kind of the spiritual predecessor to planes, trains, and automobiles as well. Uh, you can obviously have <laughs> that uh, that thought. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's an interesting spiritual predecessor to another movie. I might talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of fun little things we can talk about as we begin to dis discuss the actual synopsis and what this film, what's actually happening here. But yeah, I just want to end the legacy of this one with a quote from fake Capra himself. Uh, he said, we made the picture really quickly Four weeks. We stumbled through it. We laughed our way through it. This goes to show you how much luck and timing and being in the right place at the right time means in show business, how sometimes no preparation at all is better than all the preparation in the world. And sometimes you need great prepara preparation, but you can never outguess this thing called creativity. It happens in the strangest places and under the strangest circumstances. I didn't care much for the picture. It turned out to be it happened one night. Mm-hmm. It's it is a it's one of those just show business things where they'd never know for sure what's going to hit. I believe the same thing uh, happened with Casablanca. That was just part yeah. of the part and, of the cycle that they were like cranking out at the time from the studio system. But it ended up just hitting all the right buttons at all the right uh, times. So, yeah, it, it's it's a fascinating thing about legacy. Yeah. And I mean, that's what happened with uh, Fitting Enough. It's a Wonderful Life as well. That failed the box office as well. So. Yeah, something about Frank Capper's movies apparently uh, <laughs> delayed yeah. gratification. Yeah, I don't there know if uh, Mr. Smith actually was successful or not upon release, but I have to look that up. Yeah, mm. I mean that was what nineteen forties or something like that. So it was like post war. Mm -hmm. It probably had an interesting box office reception because the soldiers were home. But yeah, and um, yeah, and then I was going to mention too. Uh, yeah, Orson Welles, had, you know, famously called them happy accidents. You know, he credited a lot of the success of his film to just the things that he didn't plan for. And the things that you sort of discover spontaneously. And so that's always really resonated with me. And you do get the yeah. sense that a lot of this film happens that way. I will say, though, you know, there is sort of the reverse of that in some modern films that come out where sometimes I think directors take it too far, where you see a film like, and I, you know, I don't mean to be mean to Paul Feig, but some of his films where characters are ad-libbing through the whole thing and you just really get the sense that there's no scripts, that they're just like, oh, yeah. be funny, be funny. We need some, <laughs> we need some happy accidents. Let's go with it. Uh, so it's not always, it's not an exact science. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that's what happened a lot in the 70s, too, with the, the comedies of that time. I mean, I think of, like, Caddyshack. That's exactly what happened. Like, they just kind of winged it throughout the whole thing. And then Animal House. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think we're ready to talk about this film, uh, what it is about. So it happened one night. The it, uh, <laughs> I think, I think it is up for debate on what the it is. You know, so, some people famously think, oh, they're trying, it's trying to be a tantalizing name of the film, right? To make you, to make people think, ooh, well, you know, a romance, it happened. Right? It's yeah, very suggestive. Uh, but there is a certain mm-hmm. plot point that we'll we'll get into <laughs> involving uh, what's called the Walls of Jericho that a lot of people roundly refer to as what happens because this isn't a film. This is not a film that takes place in one night. It's not a one crazy night kind of film. It's actually a road trip film. Uh, it's also a, as we mentioned, a romantic comedy. It's also a screwball comedy. It, it is one of those really rare films that equally does three pretty prominent genres. Now, it first introduces us, this film, to Ellie Andrews. She's a spoiled socialite who's recently married a very wealthy aviator named King Wesley. Now, her father disapproves of Wesley, thinks that he is just after her for her money. So her father is actively keeping her away from him in Miami, but she dramatically escapes her father. And she now has to travel from Miami to New York to reunite with her husband without her father's hired goons trying to find her. Problem is that she's out of her depth. She's a very wealthy person. She has no sense of how to travel, how to budget her money. It's a very interesting uh, commentary on the Great Depression and what to do when you're strapped for resources. So while riding a cross-country bus, she meets an out-of-work reporter named Peter Warren. They initially cannot stand each other, as you can imagine, but they reluctantly decide they can help each other out. Peter can help Ellie stay hidden and get to New York safely and in one piece, while Ellie's fascinating story will make for a pretty good headline that Peter can leverage into a new job. Now, this is a prototypical romantic comedy So I don't think it's a spoiler to say that a very unlikely romance is bound to spark between our two leads. How could it not? These characters have so much chemistry, right? Now, Mm -hmm. it happened one night, I have to say, is a film that is so dated in a lot of ways, but it's also so (laughs) modern in others. And we'll talk to all of the controversies, but Will Ashton, what are your general thoughts on this one? You know, watching it fresh, you know, what were your expectations going in and what's your takeaway now that you've seen it? Um, Well, I don't know if I had any expectations going in, but I do find it always fascinating when you revisit films like this, um, how they transcend. And like, when you think as you're watching a film, like, oh, that's kind of, you know, cliche. And it's like, well, it's not like, this is like what, started like said cliched or like what how the so-and-so like catchphrase came into popularity or at least i would have to assume so um but yeah i mean watching it um i didn't quite know what to make of it going in like at the beginning i was kind of like well i mean it's charming but i don't see exactly why this is like so iconic in the way that it was like you were saying like winning all five of those oscars those major oscars at the time but i think as you watch it or you kind of just let it soak in you kind of see how it feels like we were talking about earlier that frank capra is such an american filmmaker but that's not like american in the sense of like you know like michael bay or anything where it's like you know flag and all that no it's just like very yeah. like like organic to like the american experience and just having you know like kind of like movies i thought about watching this were like the grapes of wrath like another uh american filmmaker john ford and then like bringing up baby which obviously i think this play a big part in inspiring but um yeah there's just something very kind of not structured at all but very like kind of organic in the way that the love story kind of comes together it feels not very plot driven like there's really not that much of a plot going into this thing but the way that the love story comes together it's not one that you i mean it is one that you've seen several times before but just it feels uh organic and it feels sincere and that I think that comes to how the movie was made. It just like kind of is flying by the sea of its pants. And that I f- think fuels uh, the tone and the energy of the film. Yeah. I think uh, to what you're saying, Will, it's simple. It's simple, mm-hmm. but in a good way, in a way that, mm-hmm. you know, you watch it. And I think that organic nature of it that you're talking about really is just that it is a film that kind of gets better as it goes along. It doesn't throw a lot at mm-hmm. you all at once. It just kind of slowly takes you along for a ride and mm-hmm. slowly wins you over, much like in the way these characters kind of win over each other. Now, I'm going to play a quick clip from the film before we get into your thoughts, Sam. This is the meet-cute uh, between Peter and Ellie. This is when they're on the bus. Now, Peter has just had to fight with the bus driver to get his seat. It's a very funny exchange. We would have played the whole thing, but we don't want to keep you all listening all night. But yeah, so this is 
now Peter uh, running into Ellie, who has now taken his seat on the bus. Excuse me, lady, but that upon which you sit is mine. I beg your pardon? Now listen, I put up a stiff fight for that seat, so if it's just the same to you, scram. Driver, are these seats reserved? No, first come, first served. Thank you. Hey, driver, these seats accommodate two people, don't they? Well, maybe they do and maybe they don't. Thank you. Move over. This is a maybe they do. If you'd ask me real nice, I might put that bag up there for you. All right, I love that clip. I think it perfectly captures the comedic timing of Clark Gable's character in this uh, kind of dry wit that I think you were talking about, Will. And it's, it's a wonderful scene. This is a movie that surprises you because so many of its scenes, even though there is like a rapid pace to them, they happen very quickly, which is why it works as a comedy. There are some scenes where there is just stillness. There's a bit more patience. And yeah, I think the pacing of this film probably couldn't be better. But okay, Sam Noland, now you're seeing mm. this for the second time, I want to say, uh, or second time yes. that I'm aware of. So uh, mm-hmm. you have a unique perspective of when you first watched it versus watching it again. Yeah, the first time I watched it, uh, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I think that uh, that organic way that it just sort of goes apace is really refreshing compared to a lot of the movies we see nowadays where everything has to be, you know, turned up to 11. I'm sort of generalizing, but that's that is what it feels like sometimes. Um, And I really love that uh, seeing the Depression era on film. Uh, I just think there's just something about it that I find really uh, fascinating and it's always evoking a time period that just so much was happening. Uh, I think it really brings out the best in, uh, in characters of all kinds. Cause, uh, it was, it was a time period where there wasn't necessarily like a war going on, but it was just sort of a state of things that is sort of not what just not ideal not what not what we're uh not what we're used to yeah if i can interject i would say the what's unique about it is it's right in the center of the depression right it's a few years after the initial shock of the depression but it's not quite close to when the war happens so it is kind of in that weird stasis where they know that it's people know that it's going on so it's not the news of the day but it still affects their daily lives and there's no end in sight and i think that's a a very unique context for this film to have that i think is successful you can successfully understand the era through the film without it being preachy that's correct yeah it is it's dead in the middle of the depression it started 29 ended 39 so this is smack in the middle uh and it does feel lived in and i really appreciate that and i love seeing how these two individuals from sort of the opposite sides of the track so to speak how they interact with each other and how they sort of bounce off of each other and uh watching it the second time in particular uh i was i really paid attention to how it's sort of how it's sort of if not introduced then sort of codified a lot of these cliches uh like you know in particular the way that they sort of dislike each other at first and how one wants nothing to do with the other but they feel this sort of irresistible attraction that they're not quite able to to uh to quantify yet but it just sort of builds and builds throughout the movie and ends in sort of a really unusual third act which i really appreciate um but yeah and i my one of my favorites is how uh they're like you know in a in a in a cramped location and one of them falls asleep like on the other's shoulder that's that that was one that i really uh Pretty adorable, Just, yes. They're pretty adorable in that Clark Gable way. Yeah, I, I love that clip. By the way, I could I could just hear the Bugs Bunny in that one. <laughs> yeah, because in the clip we showed, you know, right after that is when she gets up to put her bag away, and then she falls like right into him, and that is a straight out of rom com history, right? And <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think you're totally right. That that is a great way to appreciate this film. It's like even though, like you were saying, Will, there are some cliches, you can appreciate it, the historical well, standing of it, and and enjoy it for that. Right. I mean, they're only cliches in the sense that we just know them now, but I don't think at the time they were cliches, but that, that moment in particular, I, I agree. Like that was like one, like, Oh, we've seen that before, but I was like, well, at the time they haven't probably not. No, right, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it didn't even bother me at all. I'm just so charmed by the whole thing. It doesn't even uh, get under my skin at all. 
Same here. And, you know, there are some things in this film that happen that don't happen in modern rom-coms today. You know, I think specifically about there's just an extended sequence where these characters are on the bus and they're singing trapeze, right? High-flying trapeze. Oh, yeah. And it's just a, a, it's just a moment of joy in between uh, what at this point has been kind of like a romantic, you know, comedy, suspenseful, are they going to get away from the goons kind of stuff. Yeah. And I love it because, you know, and Frank Capra sings in it. So it's great to see him, you know, getting a little cameo. And Wait, who it, is he? Oh, no kidding. Uh, yeah, he's he's the guy who, he's the second one, I want to say, who does oh, the yeah? who does a verse. Yeah. You can huh. tell because he's the one with the really dark hair. He's, he's a pretty handsome guy. I'm just going to say it. You know? I just hey. didn't know, yeah. Yeah, and, and so it's, it's great to see him, of course, you know, doing a cameo in his own film. And then you just get the sense that, it, it and it has a purpose. You get the sense that it's happening because it's it's educating this sort of spoiled character who doesn't have to deal with the hardships of the depression, understanding that, you know, the people going through this right now, the people who are, you know, have to get on a bus from Miami to New York, they are sort of they're they're happy in their own way. And they yeah. can be happy with a little. And it's a wonderful moment of character development for her and for Peter. And that's one of the things I love about this film is that yeah. Even though so many things happen in it that make me cringe in terms of like the way that <laughs> yeah. the, the misogyny and like yeah. obviously the very, very dated references to, you know, sucking your lady. She deserves it once in a while, that kind of thing. You do sort of believe the chemistry between these characters and yeah, I'll echo it again. Well, you're, you're, I think organic is the right way to put it. It just sort of happens in a believable way for the most part. Um, it does happen. <laughs> love does happen you heard it from the cinemaholics here first yeah, <laughs> yeah. breaking news people oh yeah <laughs> all right we're gonna play another clip this one is pretty good it, it's so it's kind of one of the first times we really realize that ellie has no idea what she's doing and she has lost her her luggage she almost misplaced her ticket and she was late for her bus but then peter shows up you know in between the stops uh, he d decided he was going to wait for her and he was going to give her her ticket and they have a conversation because he confronts her and because he now knows that she is an heiress, that she has all of this money and she begs him not to reveal who she really is to anyone else. Here's a clip. You know, I've always been curious to know what kind of a girl would marry a front page aviator like King Wesley. Take my advice. Grab the next bus back to Miami. That guy's a phone. I didn't ask for your advice. That's right. You didn't. But you're not going to notify my father, are you? What for? You probably could get some money out of him. Yeah, I never thought of that. Listen, if you promise not to do it, I'll pay you. I'll pay you as much as he will. You won't gain anything by giving me away as long as I'm willing to make it worth your while. I've got to get to New York without being stopped. It's terribly important to me. I'd pay you now, only... The only thing I had when I jumped off the yacht was a wristwatch, and I had to pawn that to get these clothes. But I'll give you my address, and you can get in touch with me the minute you get to New York. Never mind. You know, I had you pegged right from the jump. It's a spoiled brat of a rich father. The only way you get anything is to buy it, isn't it? You're in a jam, and all you can think of is your money. It never fails, does it? Ever hear of the word humility? No, you wouldn't. I guess it never occurred to you to just say, please, mister, I'm in trouble. Will you help me? No, let it bring you down off your high horse for a minute. Well, let me tell you something. Maybe it'll take a load off your mind. You don't have to worry about me. I'm not interested in your money or your problem. You, King Wesley, your father, you're all a lot of hooey to me. You know, one of the things about this film that kind of intrigued me when I was watching it, I was like, man, these characters are not likable. <laughs> They're not sympathetic. <laughs> and, and what's crazy about that is it explains why they had such a hard time finding actors to play these roles. I mean, you know, I was looking this up and, and apparently Clark Gable had to do this as punishment <laughs> because of his affair with Joan Crawford and, and Clave Colbert, you know, she did Cleopatra the same year, but she was still kind of, you know, I think there were like three famous actresses right before this that did this, including Clark Gables, uh, later the the woman he married. So you just get the sense that this film, I think the writing of it is so good. The dialogue is so good, but these characters come off so harsh. And I think the reason it works, and maybe you guys can disagree or agree, is that it's these characters sort of, you know, challenging each other. And in this particular scene, it's 
it's actually Peter, you know, going to her and sort of calling her out for the way that she doesn't understand the common person. She doesn't understand the value of money for everyone else. And, and that to me is why I think people watch this in the thirties and were like a best picture, like get this thing, so many mm-hmm. awards, because that must've been a very fresh perspective. But what do you think? Will? am I, is that a mystery to you? I wouldn't say it's a mystery. No, I think it makes a good bit of sense. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. I, I do think it is a it is a very interesting dynamic they have because I think you briefly mentioned the misogyny, and I do think that is worth talking about um, because a lot of the the movies in the 30s do still have that, unfortunately. And as much as we can say, you know, that they were a product of their time, uh, we watch them differently now. So it is something to keep in mind. I, I rewatched uh, King Kong recently, the 1933 one, which is a movie I love to pieces. It's another one of my favorites of the 30s. Also rather misogynistic. And it's just one of those things that uh, if you can put it aside, then great. And if not, then that's also understandable. But I do think this one does hold up better than uh, a lot of other movies from the time period uh because i do feel like they're going the extra mile to sort of to sort of balance it a little bit more to have that i got that, I got that pun out. sam they went i i was so <laughs> i was so debating whether or not to actually say it and i thought i'm just gonna plow right past it and see if john notices we're all about the puns. Totally yeah oh yeah they're all they're uh they're all over the place every time you guys say happened i just keep thinking about it yeah uh, of course yeah but i digress so anyways as i was saying um it is very interesting to see sort of this fish out of water and a fish in water, so to speak. Um, and in hot water, I, maybe. In hot water, yes, yes. And very, uh, very lukewarm, uh, uh, romantic uh, water. Which explains yes. how those clothes were not getting wrinkled the entire time. That's correct. Yes. Very, very good wardrobe designer for this movie. Absolutely. Wow. Oh my goodness. Ellie oh, yeah, Andrews dress sure. is just instantly, instantly iconic. We didn't even mention that. Uh, oh, well, actually we'll get to that because we have, we'll, we'll get to a little controversy in, in, involving some undergarments, but go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I don't even, I, don't, I, what was I talking about? Uh, oh yeah. The <laughs> dynamic between them. Yeah. There's, there's a scene uh, a little bit later that uh, involving a very humorous scene uh, in which they they try to catch a ride on the side of the road, and I think that's a very good scene about sort of calling uh, Peter Warren Clark Gable out on sort of his smarminess and just the the ego he seems to have. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it it ends in a scene in a in a way that might seem a little degrading, but I think it's all in good fun. So that that is a that's one thing I really dig about this movie is that how it is essentially. Uh, I mean, they're co-leads, but it is more, I feel like the more interesting story is Ellie's story, how it's about her sort of recognizing or being introduced to rather the, the virtues of sort of living within your means and, uh, experiencing those high highs and low lows. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it, it doesn't focus on the, really the terribly depressing lows of the depression, no pun intended. Uh, so I think that could be a little bit, uh, problematic if you, if you want to take issue with that, but I think this is really a great impression of the time. Obviously I wasn't alive then, but I really do dig how this is able to sort of communicate that, uh, that story that Ellie goes through all throughout the movie. And it's not just that, but that would sort of have to get into, into details towards the end. Yeah. I think it struck a nice balance in my opinion of the way that it, brings up the depression in ways that are subtle and ways that are not so subtle. You know, obviously there's the starving child scene, which is probably the most provocative declaration of this film and what era it takes place in. But also I think that that hitchhiking scene in general too, you know, all throughout up to that point, you see that Peter is just being very critical of Ellie whenever she wants to use her body to sort of get them something. And that's a big reason why he's against her exposing her leg during the hitchhiking scene. And what's interesting about that too, is that Claudette Colbert didn't do that. (laughs) And that's a stunt double, but you know, so that kind of tells you about how risque and sort of sensational that was at that time. And there, there is a duality to that. You can sort of take it as he, he's sort of telling her, like, don't sell yourself out because you don't want to take advantage of other people because everybody out here is struggling. Everybody out here doesn't have a lot. And so when you try to manipulate people with your body or with whatever you have to get something out of them, it's a bad thing. And it's a bit of a hypocrisy on his part because he's obviously doing that to her, but he feels like because she is rich, 
that's fine. She deserves it. And his character development, while she's learning to be more sympathetic, while she's learning to be more understanding of the common person, he is learning to treat people like human beings and understand that people who do have means are human, which is a tougher, you know, subject <laughs> these days, probably. Uh, that, that's something we could yeah. get into because she is filthy rich by today's standards. Now, uh, but but what do you think, uh, Will? Was there anything that watching this film that you thought was dated or w- was just something that didn't quite maybe click with you or maybe it did in terms of its relevance? I mean, I think you guys pointed on the main ones for me. Yeah, I think just the the way the film is fairly derogatory towards women was certainly noticeable. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, the leg scene in particular, I, I, I did notice that too, that it was um, a double. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess by these... Uh, 30 standards that was a little uh, risque but mm-hmm. yeah um other than that i don't know if there, nothing else is coming to mind for me personally well then speaking of risque we have you guessed it another clip this is from one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie the walls of jericho scene and this is what i was referring to earlier that we were talking oh about yeah, yeah 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 that makes right sense, yeah. right so in this scene Peter and ellie they're pretending to be husband and wife they're staying in an auto home motel room And to sort of make things a little bit better, he has set up a rope and blanket to divide them. He calls it the Walls of Jericho. So here is that clip. That, I suppose, makes everything quite all right. Well, this? Well, I like privacy when I retire. Yes, I'm very delicate in that respect. Prying eyes annoy me. Behold the walls of Jericho. Uh, maybe not as thick as the ones that Joshua blew down with his trumpet, but a lot safer. You see, uh, I have no trumpet. Now, just to show you my heart's in the right place, I'll give you my best pair of pajamas. Uh, do you mind joining the Israelites? You don't want to join the Israelites? All right. Uh, perhaps you're interested in how a man undresses. You know, there's a funny thing about that. Quite a study in psychology. No two men do it alike. You know, I once knew a man who kept his hat on until he was completely undressed. Yeah, now he made a picture. Years later, his secret came out. He wore a toupee. All right, that is from the Walls of Jericho scene. And he goes on, and you can't see it, of course, but he is undressing himself. And what's so shocking about that scene is that he actually takes off his entire shirt. And you see him... (laughs) You know, half naked, ooh, which ooh, at the time, ooh, obviously, yeah. yes, yes, calm down, everyone. <laughs> but a, a, a funny, a funny part of that scene was, of course, that he wasn't wearing an undershirt because it was taking that him too long when they were filming it uh, to take off the shirt and sort of do the flow of the speech. So by seeing him not wear an undershirt, it actually became a little popular to not wear an undershirt. Uh, during the day and apparently shirt sales plummeted because of this oh, no. you know film history is rife of course with you know the markets getting affected it, you know real life getting affected by the movies and this is a very fun early example because there are movies where i think th- i forget which one it is but there's a film where one a famous actor is shown wearing a plain white t-shirt and the reverse of this kind of thing happened and shirt sales just went through the roof uh, the opposite of course happens here sam noland Reveal to the world did this did this film change your your dressing habits uh i can't honestly say that it did i think i think uh peter's right that everyone has their own habit and it's hard to it's hard to sort of crawl out of that crawl out of that pit but uh it is it is a very fascinating scene um especially considering all the stuff with the production code and everything and i think it is worth pointing out i sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier but um it's it's this scene and a, and a few other sort of throwaway lines. Um, I think it is reasonable to say that perhaps Peter, throughout the uh, first two acts, is maybe being a little uh, pushy or abrasive, and that can be sort of a little uncomfortable to watch nowadays. And so I think it is worth I think it is worth pointing that out. But I think there's something about this scene that is so like so uh, so giddy in the way in the way it's just sort of doing this one simple act and sort of dragging it out a little bit that I really I just I just kind of find it uh very amusing more than anything. Right. And there's the scene not too long after the morning after when they're having their fake argument to throw off the detectives. I mean I think that was the first time in this movie where I was just like, this is just funny. This is just hilarious. Yeah. And I, I was laughing at it. 
And I think that speaks to what I was talking about earlier, where you just and you just show this film to somebody and it the jokes still work, you know, just as well probably as they did back then. Maybe it was funnier back then, I don't know. But yeah, it, it's just uh, so shocking to laugh at it nowadays. <laughs> actually, it's funny you say that though, because that bit with um, them arguing was probably the one of the more cringy elements for me. I felt it's not because cringy. I didn't think the joke, but yeah. I just felt like it was kind of making light of like what is essentially like domestic abuse. So. I mean, I don't know. For me, that was one of the moments that was kind of a little more hard to watch than modern standards, I felt. I, I totally understand that. I, I think it's just like I was in my own head about how they were faking it. And so what was yeah. funny to me no, was that, that they were yeah, being yeah. so creative. But you're right. It, it obviously is about a very uncomfortable topic. So I can imagine that it because it does have that uncomfortable element to it, which maybe I, for some reason I found that amusing in like a guilty way, obviously, because it's depicting something pretty traumatic. Uh, obviously something that would not fly if it was in a movie these days, uh, yeah. for obvious oh, reasons. Yeah. And it's so like over the top and stuff that, I mean, that, that lends to its comedic factors. Just like, it's so heightened and ridiculous that yeah. by no means. Yeah. Yeah. You believe that they fall in love too. Cause it's after the scene where you really see them sort of like each other for the first time. They sort of enjoy each other's creativity. And obviously the the love story blossoms from there because up to that point, I was like, how am I supposed to believe these two are going to fall in love? They obviously can't stand each other. And the, the film hoodwinked me. I'll put it that way. <laughs> All right. I think we're kind of winding down. You know, we talked a lot about this film and, you know, we'll leave, we'll leave more of the third act a bit of a mystery because I imagine some people might be listening who haven't seen it or maybe haven't seen it in a while. And I think it's a great film to revisit. Uh, one thing I will say is that I, I was surprised that they never kiss in this film. Yes, I was going to bring yeah, that up. It's, it's surprising. Yeah, they almost kiss. I'll tell you one thing that didn't happen that night. <laughs> oh, oh, you so-and-so. Right. And, but, you know, speaking to that, because we're talking about the walls of Jericho symbolism. Yeah, that that yep. is what happened, is sort of the wall kind of coming down. And the film, it becomes a film about letting your guard down around somebody and opening yeah. yourself up to someone who can challenge you and teach you something about life. And to me, that's very beautiful. And it's a big reason why I think I really love this. Now, I, I don't know, guys, should we should we go through the effort of grading this? We've already sort of teased <laughs> what Sam thinks on a more scientific level. But, well, what do you think? Do you want to even grade it? Or do, do, what? how do you want to sort of summarize your thoughts and where does this film really fit for you uh, as something that you know obviously you've just seen it you, you probably are still processing it like i am but it, does it hold a, a place you know for you in film history at this point well yeah obviously i do think it holds a place in film history and i can certainly see i think it's always rewarding to watch films like this of such high significance from what is essentially almost like 100 years ago now and you know it's just kind of fascinating to think that at this point in time, the medium of film is probably only like what, like at most like 30 or 40 years old. Right. right. Would that be right? Yeah. yeah so just like closer to 40. Yeah. 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 But the sound so, films have only been around for yeah, the know, eight have years only been around for, for Seven. Only a few, yeah, yeah. For only a few years at this point, maybe less than a decade. So yeah, it just, I, I always enjoy going back to films like this and it, I unfortunately only get a few opportunities or I guess I only allow myself to have a few opportunities to, look at films like this of such high significance, but came out uh, much longer than my usual uh, filmography is concerned. So yeah, I think it was certainly a rewarding watch in that regard. All right. And, and Sam, you famously, you know, people talk about this, you know, in hipster coffee shops around the world that you gave this film <laughs> five stars. Do uh, they really do that in those <laughs> hipster coffee shops? Cause I know the ones. And I've been there. <laughs> right, right. Oh, you must have been the one spreading the rumors. But yeah, That's so true. so so tell us about that. Nothing. What what brought you to that decision that you felt like, okay, this is a five star film and and now now you're on a on a podcast talking about it with uh some people who've never seen it until now. Oh, I didn't know I would have to go on record about my rating <laughs> process, but here we go. Uh, when I give a, I, I sort, I think about the star rating system that letterbox uses. I think about that differently from like the letter grades that, uh, that you got, that y'all do on cinemaholics. Um, I think when it comes to a star rating for whatever reason, it's not necessarily about like weighing the pros against the cons and coming out with some sort of average. It's more about what kind of effect does this have on me? Uh, 
and it can be obviously positive or negative. So when I give this movie five stars, I'm not saying that it's completely flawless. Um, there are a few things with the third act that I take issue with that I obviously we're not going to get into. Um, and, uh, and of course there are a few, uh, things that can occur to us when looking at it through modern eyes that are like, okay, this is from the thirties. And while maybe some indulgence is necessary, it's also reasonable, uh, to sort of, uh, to, to use modern criticisms, so all that being said, I, I do think that this is quite honestly one of my favorite movies of all time, just for all those positive things we did talk about. And uh, just get a little person personal here. Uh, as someone, tear rolls down my face, as someone who's never been in a relationship, I find this movie very aspirational. And I think that uh, this is one that's going to stick with me for a long time. And I think this is one I'm going to, going to keep going back to time and time again. I was sort of, I was a little hesitant to rewatch it this time. I was like, is it going to hold up? And, uh, it did just as much. So that's sort of what a five-star movie is for me. If, if I'm doing the letter grade, then I'd give it a really, really, really high A, I think is, uh, is how I'm going to come out, come down on it. Not quite an A plus, but practically an A plus. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you are saying about how aspirational this film is. I, I struggle a little bit with like, man, you know, that that spark, that passion in a relationship is obviously something that is common. It's a truism that it's something we tend to say that we want in relationships. And something that I really appreciate about this one, I, re- I kind of ironic that we mentioned Jack Lemmon earlier, is that one of my favorite films of all time, it's usually my number one, it goes back and forth between one and two other films. But The Apartment from obviously Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine has always just been a film that kind of scratches that same itch I think that you're talking about where every time I revisit it, it sort of reminds me of what I personally value in human connection and romance. And it's a big reason why I tend to think the romantic comedy is, it just deserves so much more credit than we sometimes give it. It kind of astounds me that this film got best picture, but imagine it coming out today, you know, romantic comedies. Imagine we gave the best picture, you know, we just had the Oscars. Imagine we gave that to, isn't it romantic? What men want? <laughs> Two Valentine's Day films that came out this month. Obviously we're joking well, around with that, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess what was the best romantic comedy of last year? If we're looking at by that standards. Well, I know for me, it was probably the one that I enjoyed the most. It's probably to all the boys I loved before. That one oh, I still didn't see that one. that I really enjoyed. I would say a film that I watched today that I really enjoyed, a romantic comedy, was Sleeping with Other People. I uh, just got on Netflix. That's a good one. Yeah. It's, it's a good film. And it, it, there were a couple of things about it that I was like, ooh, that wasn't something that bothered me in 2015. But um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of mansplaining going on in that film. But yeah, you know. That's the kind of film that I think, you know, the kind of romantic comedy that I personally really enjoy. And I, we, we said it a lot. I, I just think it's so much fun, you know, discovering, for me at least, for the first time, you know, some of these prototypical romantic comedies and appreciate them on that level. And yeah, I would recommend this film to so many people I know, so many people who haven't seen it yet, or maybe they saw it when they were kids and haven't had a chance to reevaluate it as an adult. So, that's it happened one night the first of our extra milestone series i thought this was a lot of fun guys it's really great to dig into some older films i'm not sure what we're going to do for the month of march we might leave it to our patrons possibly but uh yeah we're going to try to have you back on again of course sam noland because you know we just want to get film schooled by you sometimes you know Uh, don't you know take it with a take it with a fairly reasonably sized grain of salt but yes, i appreciate yes manage everyone manage everyone manage your expectations of course yes, yes. all right well that'll do it for us for this bonus episode we are doing the main show cinemaholics next week so keep your eyes out for that but for now uh from the internet california i am john Gray. and from the internet pennsylvania i'm Washington. and from the internet colorado i'm sam nolan we'll see you all next time